Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, business editor for Variety. Today, my guest in New York is Peter Rader, author of the new book, Playing to the Gods, Sarah Bernhardt, Eleonora Doucet, and the rivalry that changed acting forever. This subject matter is a departure for Strictly Business. But when I read this book earlier this year, I was fascinated by the details of how the theater business worked in the late 1800s and early 1900s. I was impressed by how much Bernhardt and Doucet were true entrepreneurs. They ran every aspect of their theater companies. They commissioned their own plays and booked their tours. Playing to the Gods is a beautifully written document of the personal and professional stories of two women who helped define what it means to be a superstar as Peter explains in our conversation. Welcome to Peter Rader, author of Playing to the Gods, Sarah Bernhardt, Eleonora Duzet, and the rivalry that changed acting forever. This is a terrific book that I just devoured. I picked up kind of randomly and just absolutely devoured it. It's a, You bring to life an incredible story of these legendary actor names that that they're names that people know, but we don't know the stories behind them. And what really struck me when I was reading the book was what incredible, what an incredible story of entrepreneurial fervor that both of these women exemplified in their lives. They were, as actors, they led their production companies. They they were responsible for commissioning their own plays. They booked their own tours. They soup to nuts. They ran their businesses. And particularly Sarah was a forerunner of, you know, understanding how to milk celebrity culture, how to make herself one of the most famous women in the world. The business aspect of this is really fascinating, and that's what I want to talk about today. So welcome, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Yeah, it really is quite an inspirational story. Um, They were among the first, Sarah was the first actress to really seize control of her own destiny. And she kind of learned um, these entrepreneurial skills, in in a sense, from her mother, who was a courtesan in in Paris, in the demi-monde of Paris in the 19th century. And her mother um, and her aunt uh, ran away from home. Um, they they, They were from Amsterdam, and they fled sort of an abusive household very young, like 12 or 13, and ran across Europe and ended up in Paris. And, you know, her mother, Yule, was quite smart and um, someone who was, you know, had sort of entrepreneurial instincts. And she said, I know a business that I can start. And she basically created a salon, a courtesan salon, and ended up being, you know, right up there with some real celebrity clients, you know, very famous people, influential people who then went on to help Sarah in her career. And, um, you know, Sarah um, fell in love with with acting and, and the stage and the theater and then, you know, at a certain point, she realized that she had leverage. Um, she understood the power of her own celebrity. She actually created celebrity culture. One of the things that she understood was that the, the performance does not end on the stage. It actually continues. It's 24-7. In fact, her offstage performances were often much more entertaining. She figured out a way of staying relevant and staying in the press there was there was a period in her life where not a day went by where her name wasn't mentioned somewhere in a newspaper in uh, across the planet she knew how to build her brand just instinctively as it reads in in your pages 
Yes. Um, she, and, you know, that, that sort of culture of the exotic celebrity, kind of the Angelina Jolie or whatever, the person who goes, one of the things, the, the, her, she was propelled to fame right after the Franco-Prussian War, where she um, decided that um, the wounded troops needed help. And she basically commissioned her own theater. She was at the Odeon at the time. She um, went to the theater, uh, you know, the, the owners and said, let's turn this into a field hospital. And she was like, you know, a Florence Nightingale. She kind of put on a nurse uniform and she got all her friends to volunteer. She commit, you know, she got supplies that she needed and she was basically taking care of the troops. And that basically made her national hero. And this is like the 1860s, mid 1860s. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, a little later than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so and then right after that, her theater company went um, abroad to to England, and um, she realized that the um, all the 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 British press was really interested in her and her story. So she just insisted on first billing, and you know, and then and then right after that, she she quit the company and formed her own company because she just realized that she had clout. The celebrity profile was sort of invented, uh, you know, around Sarah Bernhardt. Let talk about the way that that the theater business was constructed in those days, because again, that that struck me that it was so much of it, you know, started and finished with the stars. It was it didn't seem like it was as much of a circuit kind of a business that you saw in the early 20th century in this country? Well, um, so they were repertory theaters, and then there was a, they, they ran a series of plays in rotation. You've got to think about the fact that this was before radio, before TV. I mean, the only the thing that you did to be entertained at night was you went out to the theater. So um, they made sure that there was a different play every night of the week. So you kind of rotated these, theater, these plays in, in succession, and the company um, uh, had, uh, you know, a, a bunch of um, uh, plays that were ready at hand, and they were popular. They were entertaining. They were light. They weren't particularly heavy um, in terms of theme and plot. And uh, it was a social experience. You went there. You kind of paid attention to the play. You kind of didn't. You know, you were kind of panning the audience with your opera glasses even more than the play. You know, who's who's wearing what and gossiping, and there was lots of noise. You know, people weren't paying attention particularly to the play. They probably had seen it before. Um, they were kind of throwaway exercises. It was a way of just gathering and, you know, having an entertaining experience. Um, they were run by men. Men made all the decisions, you know, costume, casting, a rep, you know, what play was being played. And... Um, at a certain point, when um, Sarah realized the you know the power that she had, she basically abandoned the patriarchy and, and seized control of her own career and her own destiny by forming her own company, which was unprecedented at the time. And again, for a woman to to waltz into a theater and say, "Okay, I'm going to book this theater," and she, I mean, she in the book you you describe she's booking tours across Europe, she's coming to the United States. I can't even imagine you know people even taking taking a woman seriously in terms of trying to do that kind of a business venture, but on the other end of, <laughs> not on the other end of the phone, but on the other end of the correspondence was one of the f- most famous women in the world. And that's, as you say, she knew how to leverage that. And here's an- another interesting thing about Sarah is that her breakout role, the role that really made her famous, was a man. She, it, several times during her career, she played, she, she, you know, played the, you know, male parts, 
And her first role was um, Zanetto in a play called Le Passant by Coppé. And um, it was like he was a sort of a, a minstrel who was stroll, you know, going around. And it's about him and his relationship with an older um, courtesan, actually. And um, that was her breakout role. And that's the first role that she played, you know. And, and the, her final role was also a man. Um, she played a, a um, morphine addict named Daniel. Um, and, and then in the middle there, she played Hamlet a couple of times. In fact, right now on Broadway, there's this, there's this play called Bernhard Hamlet, which celebrates the fact that she played, tackled theater's most challenging role. She had the guts to play Hamlet multiple times in her career, including after she lost her leg. She had a leg amputated and she still played Hamlet. So there was something about that, um, gumption, you know, that she just sees, con- you know, I can do anything, basically, that was um, a force of nature, you know. She literally never stopped in her life. And she went, as the book recounts, you know, she went through, you know, highs and lows, like any like any actor today. But the, the story of in 1915, having her leg for medical reasons, amputated and still going out on stage for almost another decade. It's just incredible. But she knew she knew what she had. She also took defeats and turned them somehow. She spun them into triumphs. She would, and, and nothing, all publicity was good. Didn't matter what she did, you know. She, she just knew this idea of milking, you know, milking um, every angle for, 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 you know, for publicity's purposes. And also celebrity endorsements. Mm-hmm. She did that too. She, she invented that whole idea that, you know, celebrities could, you know, um, you know, aperitif, you know, they would, there were soaps named after Sarah Bernhardt. There was, you know, beef bouillon, you know, all sorts of things. <laughs> Crazy, um, yeah, endorsements. And let's talk about Eleonora, a very different type of personality, very different type of actor on stage. But still behind the scenes, she did. She was also very entrepreneurial. Yes. So um, Eleanor is 14 years Sarah's junior and was very much inspired by her um, in the sense of a woman seizing control of her own destiny. Um, in Italy, uh, you know, the theater was a little behind. France, Paris was the center of the theater um, at, at that point. And the French plays, everyone was putting on the French plays. So um, Eleanor was, was doing French plays in translation. Um, and uh, there were no real Italian playwrights at the time. And that's kind of one of the things that she was her life mission, is to really establish the Italian theater and find an Italian playwright, which really got her into trouble. Um, with this fellow named Annunzio, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, but um, what what I thought was fascinating about this story and this rivalry is it's very much like an Amadeus, um, which is one of my favorite movies and plays, um, but in reverse. Because in some senses, the, the Amadeus, the, 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 the prophet, the genius, was obscured by history. No one knows Eleanor Duza's name. Everyone still knows Sarah Bernhardt. 150 years after, you know, or 120 years after her death, she's, she's still a household name in, in some senses because she made sure of it. She made sure that she stayed relevant. Um, Eleonora kind of discovered this idea of um, the modern style of acting, of the idea of disappearing into your characters, the idea of being a chameleon. And she also shunned the press so um she she you know didn't do a lot of interviews and and um she was not about you know calling the spotlight to herself so we kind of forgot her you know 
And yet in her day, critics would rave about her technique and her ability and her, her empathy, whereas Sarah was a, a more heightened kind of what you descri- you know, what you described as pose acting, lots mm-hmm. of tableaus and lots, you know, mm-hmm. uh, hands to the forehead, but, you know, uh, of the moment and, and a, a style for, for her time, whereas Eleonora was really an innovator mm-hmm. on stage. Yeah, um, in fact, the sort of the, the um, basic comparison I like to I like to make is that in the 19th century, acting was very much from the outside in. It was there were literally manuals of poses. You know, grief was pose 19, so you go up, come up stage, and you know, do pose 19 and deliver the line. So, and you know, and the master actors like Sarah were were champions of these poses, and they would turn them into works of art and. And, um, you know, what's interesting about it is that it was very emotionally effective. It wasn't like the audience was saying, oh, God, that's so phony. No, we were completely buying into that convention and we were sobbing in the audiences. I mean, there's all sorts of anecdotes of people fainting, you know, during Sarah Bernhardt's performances and being having to be revived with smelling salts and stuff like that because she was so emotionally effective. And yet, and yet, at a certain point, playwrights started act, writing plays about things that were much more subtle, about the disillusion of a marriage, for instance, right. like, you know, like Ibsen, you know, A Doll's House, a woman walking out on a, on a marriage. You can't really act that with poses. So, you know, Eleanor has kind of rediscovered kind of original acting, which is this idea of acting from the inside out, of finding a, an emotionally truthful place and, you know, acting from, 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 from that place. In their own way, both of these women were helping to develop the visual language of what is now, you know, of what what now plays out, whether it's on stage or on screen. It's, yes, um, interesting. And Eleonora had her own company and did not as not as not as well and not as successfully for as long. But she also was a businesswoman in her own right in terms of packaging and putting together her own company. If I'm not mistaken, yeah, absolutely. Um, she didn't nearly have the um, energy and stamina of Sarah. Sarah would, you know, put on twice as many shows in any given week, or maybe even three times as many shows. Um, uh, Eleanor was a little sickly. She would often take to her bed, you know, do um, fewer performances. But certainly in her time, she was just as famous and just as as powerful. And she definitely uh, followed Sarah's example of seizing control of her own career. As soon as she realized that she could do that, she did. She, um, partnered with 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 a manager who would run run the company but she definitely made all the decisions herself and what in for in her day in her prime what kind of what kind of money was sarah pulling in i recall in the book it's a pretty stunning figure for the turn of the century i'm trying to think what it is in 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 contemporary dollars but it it would be in the in the you know tens of millions um you know she was she she, and she insisted upon being paid in gold sovereigns (laughs) In her tour of America, it was like, bring me the bag of gold before I go on stage or I'm not performing. I, when you think about the the construct today, like, did she have, was there like a promoter layer that would help her? Or would, would Sarah, if there was a fight with the theater over the, over the splitting, like splitting the receipts, would it be Sarah, you know, having to go in there and, and fight with somebody for something like that? I think that Sarah fought her own fights. Yeah, she definitely had had the ability. You know, what's interesting, um, there's a funny anecdote about promotion and how Sarah would use publicity. Um, when she toured America, one of her most famous plays was this play, um, Camille, La Dame Camilla, 
um, which is about a courtesan who falls in love with one of her clients, and it's an ill-fated, doomed relationship. The courtesan also has um, tuberculosis, so she ends up dying at the end of the play. Um, but it was, you know, scandalous. In, in you know, um, it, it was a very popular play because you basically got to go into the boudoir of a courtesan, see backstage, like how that works. That you know, demi monde world works. Um, Sarah played the part oh, over a thousand times. Oh my god! In in her career, um, when she brought it to America, the puritanical sort of um, uh, uh, Protestant community basically decided that it was scandalous and it needed to be banned, or we needed to boycott her plays or whatever. So, one of the um, clerics—I forgot in which community—but but you know wrote some op-ed piece about how it was shocking or whatever. So Sarah basically sent him you know, a couple hundred dollars saying, thank you so much for that publicity. Normally I would hire a publicist to do promotion of my, but since you've done the work for me, you know, I'm going to pay you this, please donate it to your parish. You know, she was a genius in that way. Um, and how did the, you, you talk in the book about how in later years, the, the sense of the rivalry, the, the competition between not the rivalry between Eleonora's style and Sarah's style, how that also became a business opportunity for both. Yes. Um, and certainly the promoters who were working with them thought, you know, this is this is gold. This is like, you know, um, uh, McEnroe, Jimmy Connors. This is like one of these things where we can just milk this for all it's worth, you know. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so, yes, they had these you know these radically different approaches. It culminated um, in the 1895 where... Um, Sarah and Eleanor were both playing the same play in the same city across the street from each other in London, in London's West End. They were both doing this play, Magda, which was a very famous play at the turn of the, uh, the last century. And, you know, in, the, in these two radically different styles. And um, the London Times sent its uh, definitive theater critic to do the comparison review between the two. And that was George Bernard Shaw before he became a playwright, was actually a theater critic. And his review is just delicious. What kind of, it must have, you know, given that, that both of these women died in the 1920s, um, the research to, to really bring these women to life must have been, you know, a lot of books and a lot of diving into, into very musty archives. What kind of source material really helped you paint this great portrait? Well, um, you know, first of all, thank God for Google. It's just amazing what you can get. I mean, you know, um, and also the press at the time was was very, very active. This was the sort of time of the kind of the Hearst papers. And, you know, there was just constant coverage. Um, and also both of them, especially Eleonora, um, wrote just tons of letters. So you have these um, very specific, very detailed um first-person accounts of, you know, what she was feeling and, and doing. I also, you know, went to Italy. I grew up in Italy. Mm -hmm. I actually, my first 15 years were in Rome. And, you know, I went back and, and went to some of the places because I like to write in a very visual style. And I kind of like to see the place and feel and smell. What 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 is it really like, you know, these places? She she grew up in the Veneto region near, near Venice. And, you know, I went to some of those places and really got a sense of, 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 the, of the place and, and the period. Um, and, uh, and also, you know, they, they both have been covered in, in some really excellent biographies by, by other writers. So, you know, I definitely went into secondary sources too, um, to sort of fill out the picture. What would you say in, in all your research, 
what would you say was the most surprising thing that you learned, whether it was about the, the business of the time or about the two women? Was there, was there a moment, was there a moment where you were just floored to, to when you came across a piece of information or, or, I guess it was this, um, in the letters between Duza and Danunzio, her kind of tumultuous love affair, the love of her life, who, who also tried to destroy her career and ended up betraying her and, and actually sleeping with Sarah. And he was a playwright, right? And they were both courting him at some point. They were both courting him, and Sarah stole his play that he had, that's, Eleanor had commissioned from him. It's really quite juicy, that part of the book. Um, but <clears throat> what was interesting is that um, in that period, the 1880s, 1890s, is that the intelligentsia were really looking for answers to deep philosophical questions, especially spiritual ones. And um, they were reading ancient Vedic texts like the Bhagavad Gita and the <laughs> really? Kama Sutra and, and things that, um, you know, I um, pre did a movie about this this um, yogi, Paramahansa Yogananda, and did a whole bunch of research about, you know, and I realized that they were reading the same things that we were reading, you know, we've been reading, my wife and I, um, recently, about this idea, the Vedantic idea of, of, of an expansive um, divinity, a divinity that's not a patriarchal bearded man throwing down lightning bolts, but the idea of divinity being a field you know, of and, and Eleanor called it the grace. There was something mystical about the way she took the stage and the way she approached her art. It was the idea of subjugating your ego or allowing the ego to actually, you know, sit on the bench for a while and let something else flow through you. And um, I was intrigued by the fact that um, she was reading these really ancient texts, which had just been translated. Yeah, she's quite a... Uh... Her intellectual life is is very active, just as her romantic life uh, was as well. And she was an autodidact. She never went to school. She was basically, you know, grew up penniless and and kind of taught herself. She was born in a trunk and born and died backstage in Pittsburgh. Correct. She was. Um, she was. She born. She was born. She uh, in a hotel room. She was born and she died in a hotel room on the road. Her entire life was on the road. Yeah, it's just an incredible story, and it's such an incredible story. It it just like screams to be a film or a limited series. I understand there's some some movement in that direction. There is indeed. Um, I always um, do think cinematically, and um, I am blessed to uh, have this book already have been optioned by Michael Susi, the Emmy and um, Golden Globe winning uh, writer director of Grey Gardens. Oh, a and, terrific HBO movie from a few years ago. Drew Barrymore, Jessica Lange. Yeah, two strong female characters. So he's really kind of the ideal director. And yeah. I'm so blessed to have him. Uh, I, it's one of those things where I'm like, please, yes, take this material and make it your own. And you see it as a feature film? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It could be a limited series, too, in, in the vein of Feud. Certainly there's a precedent there. Um, but we'll we'll see what happens with that. Great. Well, good luck with that process. What else you're working on? Anything? Uh, anything you can talk about? Um, yeah, I guess I can. Um, my wife and I, we have a production company. Um, are creating an event in India next year called Come Together, which is about um, commemorating the Beatles going to India 50 years ago and opening up the floodgates to the idea of yoga and meditation and basically changing the world um, through uh, the examination. You know, now yoga is ubiquitous and it kind of began with the Beatles taking an interest in it. 
Wow, that's an interesting prism on history. All right, well, we'll stay tuned to that. Peter Rader, thank you so much for coming by. You're so welcome. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business. 